The Looking Glass is brought to you by B2G Global Strategies, for whom I serve as CEO. B2G is an international security and investigations firm whose clients include some of the leading individuals and companies around the world. Our services include forensic accounting, anti-money laundering, cyber investigations, due diligence investigations, and security and threat assessments. You can learn more at b2gstrategies.com. We'd like to make special mention this episode of the podcast Good is in the Details. Good is in the Details is hosted by Gwendolyn Dolsky, PhD, and Rudy Sallow. Each episode of Good is in the Details features a discussion with an expert where we, the listeners, learn what we didn't know we didn't know. Join Gwendolyn and Rudy in gaining a bit of wisdom, health tips, lessons on self-improvement, and some laughter in between. I've now listened to several episodes of Good is in the Details, and I can attest that Gwendolyn and Rudy are a pleasure to listen to. They tend to select intriguing topics for discussion and bring a Socratic philosophy to the various subjects they address, which I find both appealing and educational. I would strongly recommend that you check out Good is in the Details at the first opportunity. It's available wherever you stream podcasts. Well, dear listener, we are at the end, our final episode, and the question remains before us. Did Jeffrey McDonald murder his wife and children in the early morning hours of February 17, 1970? McDonald was subjected to three different legal proceedings, the Army's Article 32 hearing in 1970, the grand jury of 1974 and 75, and the trial of 1979. The first cleared him, the second indicted him, and the third convicted him. Our review of the record suggests that McDonald received fair treatment in neither the military nor the civilian courts, and that not only should he not have been convicted, he should never have been tried. But as we noted, McDonald's being not guilty is not the same as his being innocent, and having concluded that the correct judgment in 1979 would have been not guilty, we must nevertheless consider the historical question of whether McDonald committed the crime. I'm Matthew Craig Kelly. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral stamina. <laughs> the great four, silent three, majority. Castle. Drive. <laughs> Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Andy Ryder as Errol Morris, Leonard Rittberg as Gene Stokely, and Brian Kovalt as Joe McGinnis. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at The Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. We appreciate your support. In our last episode, we considered what I regard as the most powerful case for McDonald's innocence, which is that put forward by Errol Morris in his book, A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey McDonald. The spine of Morris's case is a string of suspicious coincidences that are, by the famed filmmaker's lights, too numerous to be chalked up to chance. For Morris, 
the likelihood is that the woman on Honeycutt and North Lucas was Helena Stokely, a local drug informant known to wear boots, a blonde wig, and a floppy hat, who had no alibi for the night of the murders, and who ran with a crowd that the CID itself deemed homicidal. Who besides Stokely and her boyfriend, Greg Mitchell, was involved in the murders remains, for Morris, an open question, given Stokely's many contradictory stories about what happened that night. But those two, at least, are among the likely culprits in the killings of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald. Why did the Caspers hear a woman and men giggling outside their window as the group made its way towards 544 Castle Drive in the early morning hours of February 17, 1970? Because the woman in the wide-brimmed hat that MP Micah would later spot on the corner of Honeycutt and North Lucas, Helena Stokely, as well as Greg Mitchell and unknown others, were on their way to kill the McDonald family. Why were black woolen fibers that could not be traced to any item in the McDonald home found in Colette McDonald's mouth and on one of the murder weapons? Because her killer was wearing a black woolen garment, something Jeffrey McDonald didn't own. Why did investigators find dried candle wax on the living room coffee table and in the girls' bedrooms? Candle wax that could not be traced to any candle in the McDonald home. Because, just as Jeffrey had reported, a woman in a floppy hat and holding what appeared to be a candle had been inside 544 Castle Drive during the attack upon him and his family. Finally, why did Helena Stokely keep confessing to her involvement in the murders, right up until a few months before her death in October 1982, when she told her mother that she had been inside 544 Castle Drive that night and that Jeffrey McDonald was innocent? For the obvious reason, she was guilty. The details of the crime, for Morris and other McDonald defenders, may never be fully known, but the essence of what happened is clear enough. It is a powerful case. Is it the right case? The best analysis? That depends on what the evidence against McDonald is. Let's look at that evidence. We have been through the government's case against McDonald. The Article 32 prosecution in 1970 was a shambles, to the point that the government closed the proceedings to the public after McDonald's lawyers started interrogating and embarrassing the Army investigators. The grand jury proceedings of the mid-1970s, as we reviewed, let loose a stream of dubious and open-ended speculation about McDonald's supposed suppressed homosexuality and hidden psychopathy and threatened masculinity, as well as claims about the physical evidence that went well beyond what was empirically warranted. And finally, in 1979, we took our cues from government prosecutor Jim Blackburn, who claimed that one could throw out all the evidence and just keep two pieces— the club with the pajama fibers on it, and McDonald's perforated pajama top. We saw that these were hardly sufficient grounds for McDonald's conviction. What other evidence is there? I want to focus on four issues. Fibers, blood, wound patterns, and McDonald's evolving account of the crime. First, fiber evidence. And specifically, the distribution of pajama fibers in the McDonald home. We have noted the military's statement that the presence of McDonald's pajama fibers in the children's bedrooms was conspicuous, given that he claimed to have removed his torn and perforated pajama top before entering those rooms. But as we also observed, McDonald did not remove his pajama bottoms, which were badly ripped through the crotch, and which therefore could easily have been the source of the fibers in the children's rooms, since he was still wearing the bottoms when he entered them. But what about the absence of fibers in the living room? where investigators did not recover a single fiber. By contrast, they located scores of pajama fibers in the master bedroom. Remember, 
McDonald claimed that he was attacked in the living room where his pajama top was ripped, pulled over his head, and punctured 48 times. Why, then, were nearly all the fibers in the other rooms? There were several fibers located at the end of the hallway where McDonald claimed to have awoken after having been knocked unconscious, and where a single blood stain, possibly McDonald's type, was also located. We must count that as modest evidence in support of McDonald's story. Nevertheless, no pajama fibers in the actual living room where he was assaulted? Note also where the pajama fibers were found in the master bedroom. I quote now from a 2018 Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision. The CID team's search of the master bedroom yielded 60 purple sewing threads, similar in appearance to the threads stuck to the blood-stained piece of lumber found outside the apartment, plus 17 blue fabric yarns and a single blue-black sewing thread. In many places where there were splinters, there were also threads and yarns. Three of the purple threads were with the splinter in the blood clot beneath Colette's head, and three more purple threads were with the splinter near the largest blood stain in the area rug. Fifteen purple threads and one blue yarn were on the portion of the area rug within the outline of Colette's trunk and limbs, largely in the area that had been below her buttocks. Twelve purple threads and the single blue-black thread were on the portion of the area rug adjacent to Colette's left hand and arm. The locations of the other threads and yarns collected from the master bedroom included the following. One of Colette's forearms, two blue yarns, the throw rug near Colette's feet, three purple threads and four blue yarns, the bottom sheet and a pillowcase on the master bed, 19 purple threads and nine blue yarns, the portion of the area rug near a corner of the master bed's headboard in the area where pig was written on the headboard in blood, one purple thread, and the bedspread in the pile of bedding on the floor, two purple threads and one blue yarn. What were McDonald's pajama fibers doing in the bedding on the floor? In no part of his story did he claim to have touched or interacted with the bedding. Why was there a thread near where someone had written pig? Why were there so many fibers, a full 28, on the master bed, which McDonald also never touched after entering the room, according to his own story, and on which Colette was clearly attacked with the club, as splinters were also found there? Could these fibers have been redistributed from elsewhere by crime scene contamination, MPs haplessly moving about the apartment, picking up fibers in one location and depositing them in another? It's conceivable. But then why did so many of the fibers end up in the master bedroom? Why weren't they also out in the living room, where MPs, who were traveling both ways between the bedrooms and the living room, were also wandering around? And given that nearly all the fibers were in the bedrooms and none in the living room, does it not stand to reason that the pajama top and bottoms were torn and began shedding fibers in abundance in the place where investigators found the vast majority of them, namely the master bedroom? And if we grant that, does it not also seem most plausible that the person wearing those pajamas was the one who deposited the large number of pajama fibers on the bed and the few pajama fibers in the bedding left crumpled on the floor and near the word pig? Perhaps because the person wearing the torn pajamas was the same person who wrote the word pig, which McDonald claimed incidentally never to have noticed? Let us briefly play the other side of this argument. Okay, no pajama fibers were found in the living room. But there were some fibers, a pile or ball of them, according to investigators, at the end of the hallway leading into the living room, where McDonald reportedly fell unconscious with his torn and perforated pajama top still around his wrists. Maybe the fibers were held in the pajama top, like debris in a hammock, until he stood up, 
at which point they began falling out, the more so once he removed the pajama top on entering the master bedroom. Maybe. But are we to believe that MacDonald ripped his pajama bottoms somewhere other than the living room where he was attacked? So his pajama bottoms were ripped badly through the crotch, and his pajama top was punctured 48 times, all in the living room, but the only fibers we find are in a little pile at the end of the hallway? Whereas we find fibers all over the rooms where Colette and the children were attacked, shouldn't the fibers also be in the living room where the person wearing and tearing the pajamas that shed them was attacked by multiple intruders? Why is there nothing but a small pile at the end of the hallway? And when we consider the alternative, that the person wearing the pajamas was not attacked in the living room, but rather attacked three other individuals in the three bedrooms, does not the distribution of fibers suddenly make sense? Number two, the blood. Where do we find McDonald's blood? In the living room, where he was stabbed and beaten? No, there was not a drop of McDonald's type B blood in the living room. There were drops of type B blood in the kitchen, on the floor in front of the sink. There was also blood on the underside of the sink, though it could not be typed. But it certainly seems plausible that this blood was from the same person who bled adjacent to it, Jeffrey McDonald. Why would McDonald have bled on the underside of the sink? Perhaps because he was retrieving a pair of the rubber gloves stored beneath the sink. And why would he have done that? Perhaps to ensure that no prints would appear on the knife and ice pick he used to inflict scores of wounds on Colette and Kimberly after having incapacitated or killed them with the club, and also on Kristen, in order to make it appear that the family had been the victims of multiple intruders wielding multiple weapons. And perhaps also to write the word pig in Colette's type A blood on the headboard of the bed in the master bedroom without leaving fingerprints. Whoever wrote the word was wearing gloves, as their script featured none of the ridge lines it would have had they written the word with bare fingers. Two bits of latex, one shaped like a finger and both stained with type A blood, were in fact located in the master bedroom. One lay near Colette, the other, the finger-shaped piece, lay in the crumpled bedding that also, for some reason, contained McDonald's pajama fibers. Did one of the intruders wear latex gloves? perhaps retrieved from under the sink, as one of McDonald's appeals lawyers suggested? What do you think, dear listener? Investigators also located McDonald's type B blood in the bathroom sink, and at the juncture of the linen closet doors just outside the bathroom, about six feet up, as though someone with Jeffrey McDonald's blood on their hands had pulled apart the doors to access something inside. It happens that there were disposable scalpel blades in the linen closet, consistent with the type that could have made the small, clean incision between Jeffrey McDonald's ribs, the one that partially collapsed his lung, all of which raises the possibility that McDonald retrieved such a blade and then, with the surgeon's skill, wounded himself in front of the bathroom mirror such that he bled into the sink. McDonald, of course, acknowledged to investigators that he had been in both the bathroom and the kitchen where his blood was found. He claimed to have washed his hands at both locations. I don't know why, he would later reflect. Maybe because I'm a doctor. That doesn't explain the blood under the sink, though, or that on the linen closet. Nor does it explain, as Prosecutor Jim Blackburn argued in 1979, the absence of Colette and Kimberly and Kristen's blood in the bathroom. As Blackburn pointed out, McDonald brushed off observations about the absence of his type B blood in the living room by saying that he apparently hadn't bled much. So he didn't bleed where he was actually cut. But he did bleed in the bathroom? Quoting Blackburn, he goes to the master bedroom, and then to the kids' rooms, and then to the hallway, and then somewhere else before he goes back to the hall bathroom and washes off his hands for the first time. Washes off his hands. 
His hands were bloody, according to his own testimony. He had touched three dead people who had bled a lot. You recall his testimony on both direct and cross. I saw a lot of blood. Well then, why is the blood in the bathroom sink, according to the government testimony, that of type B, which matches his, rather than type A, type AB, or O, which matches his family? Indeed. This brings me to my third evidentiary concern, the wound patterns. Remember all the way back in episode 3, when we quoted McGinnis quoting the Fort Bragg Provost Marshal's unreleased report on the murders, which stated that the victim's wounds were in a relatively small area of the bodies? He had a point, and it is one recently echoed by the cold case investigator Paul Holes, who has come to prominence in recent years for his leading role in the capture of serial killer and rapist Joseph James D'Angelo, better known as the Golden State Killer. Holes is not an expert on the McDonald case, but in examining the autopsy photos of the victims for a 2020 episode of his Murder Squad podcast, he noticed the same thing the Provost Marshal had back in 1970. Namely, that if there were, say, two killers of Kimberly and Kristen, one wielding an ice pick and the other wielding a knife, the pair had done something highly irregular, which was to attack the victims in turn and on the same relatively circumscribed parts of the body. The wounds, that is, were not distributed across the bodies in the manner one would expect if multiple killers were attacking simultaneously, rather than a single killer attacking once with the knife and then again with the ice pick. This strikes me as a rather powerful observation, and one that strongly suggests that one individual inflicted the wounds on the children in particular, not a gang of attackers. That, in turn, strongly suggests that Jeffrey McDonald did the killing. Finally, the fourth issue, which is McDonald's story. No one doubts that McDonald is highly intelligent. So if he were to concoct a false story meant to cover up his crime, he would do so with a good deal of cunning. He would weave inculpatory evidence into an exculpatory narrative. After all, McDonald knew what happened, but he could only guess what investigators might learn about what happened. What did the neighbors see or hear? What would they tell the investigators? Let's assume for the moment that McDonald committed the crime. Assume he did injure himself in the bathroom and thus knew that the investigators might find blood there. He would therefore claim, as he did, to have gone into the bathroom and stood in front of the mirror, not to injure himself, but to check on his injuries. That would account for the blood in the bathroom sink. Similarly, if McDonald committed the murders, then it was he, and not intruders, who tossed the ice pick, knife, and wooden club out the back door. Did anyone see him? He would have no way to be certain. It is thus noteworthy, not dispositive, but noteworthy, that McDonald claimed, in his first written account of the events of February 16th and 17th, to have noticed, sometime after the attack, that the back door was ajar, and to have briefly looked outside to see if the intruders were there, and then to have come back inside. McDonald said in these same written notes that he had been fearful that the intruders might return. It is therefore also noteworthy that he neglected to lock or even close the back door after he realized it was open. Setting that aside, should investigators have interviewed a neighbor who saw McDonald briefly emerge from the back of the apartment that morning, McDonald had now incorporated that detail into his story. Yes, he popped out briefly, not to toss the murder weapons into the yard, but to look for the intruders. In these same written notes, McDonald told his attorneys, for whom the notes were prepared, that the CID had interviewed the Kalins, who lived in the other half of the duplex, and who reportedly, McDonald underscored, heard nothing unusual on the night of the murders. 
Clearly, McDonald doubted this and was thus left uncertain as to what exactly the Kalins had heard. Suppose they heard Colette and the children screaming, as Mrs. Pendleyshock had. Suppose the Kalins, because they were right on the other side of the wall, heard what Colette and the children had screamed. Suppose Colette, quite plausibly, if Geoffrey attacked her, screamed, Jeff, 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 why are you doing this to me? Stop, stop, stop. Why are you doing this to me? Suppose the Kalins heard her scream that and reported as much to the investigators. How would Geoffrey explain that? Perhaps by changing a single word, you, to they. Jeff, 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 why are they doing this to me? Stop, stop, stop. Why are they doing this to me? He wouldn't have to change Kimmy's words. He could just claim that he heard the same thing as the Kalins when he awoke on the living room couch. Daddy, 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 daddy. Again, inculpatory evidence could, through intelligent narrative foresight, be made exculpatory, or at least neutralized. Now, one might argue that, sure, if we adopt the perspective that MacDonald committed the crime, these details in his story almost certainly would be carefully crafted deceptions meant to explain away incriminating evidence. But we might just as easily adopt the perspective that MacDonald's story was true. Nothing about these details seems prima facie implausible, certainly not in the context of such an anomalous event. That is a fair point. But there is another way for us to probe MacDonald's story for narrative integrity, and that is to look for inconsistencies. We have noted some of these, the absence of pajama fibers and type B blood in the location where McDonald claimed to have been attacked is inconsistent with his story. But we might also discover inconsistencies among the various articulations of the story that McDonald has offered over the decades. Now, we cannot require utter consistency in the memory of someone recounting an event over a period of 50 years. Given the basic faultiness of human memory, there are bound to be some changes in the details of a story in that time. The question is not whether there will be a few changes. The question is whether the changes conform to a pattern. Are they random, pointing every which way in their implications? Or do they all point in the same direction? Do they all, that is, tend to exonerate the individual telling and retelling the story? I believe the answer to this last question is yes in the case of Jeffrey McDonald. Let me give you a few examples. Among the evidence McDonald's defense put forward as exculpatory were dried wax drippings that investigators found on the living room coffee table and in each of the girls' bedrooms. McDonald's team pointed out that none of these drippings could be sourced to candles in the McDonald home. This was evidence, they argued, that McDonald's story of a light and perhaps candle-wielding intruder was true. However, lab tests ultimately revealed that the wax drippings had themselves come from three different sources, not from a single candle. And there were 14 candles located inside the McDonald's home, indicating that the family used candles. McDonald's story then changed, from 1974's I Never Said I Saw Candles to 2013's The Intruder Appeared to Be Carrying One or More Lit and Dripping Candles. Remember as well McDonald's 1970s story about when he had removed his pajama top after first walking into the master bedroom. The CID investigators quizzed McDonald on how so many pajama fibers had wound up in the children's bedrooms, and McDonald had no particularly compelling answer. But by 1979, McDonald's story had changed. Now he claimed not to know precisely when he had removed his pajama top and to have covered Colette with it only on his second visit to the master bedroom, thus leaving open the possibility that the pajama top had been in the children's rooms. Again, the story changed, 
not randomly, but rather in a manner that neutralized incriminating evidence. In 1970, McDonald's story was that he'd been attacked in the living room by three men, one of whom wielded a smooth baseball bat-like club and another of whom held a blade. In 2013, his assailants wielded a club or clubs, and it followed that his pajama fibers could have stuck to the club investigators actually located and on which they found pajama fibers. Yet another change, yet another piece of incriminating evidence accommodated. Then there are the two sets of sketches of the intruders. When McDonald described the intruders in 1970, the name Helena Stokely meant nothing to him. By 1979, his defense was betting heavily on Stokely as their smoking gun, and they had a theory. Stokely, Greg Mitchell, and one Alan Maserol were among the intruders. Interestingly, when McDonald underwent hypnosis in June 1979, yielding a second set of intruder descriptions and sketches, the woman in the floppy hat now more closely resembled Helena Stokely as she had appeared in 1970. And yet, when McDonald had been shown an actual picture of Stokely during a 1971 deposition with CID investigators, he claimed not to recognize her. Back to 1979, one of the intruders, McDonald now recalled, was wearing a chain necklace with a cross on it just like Alan Maserol was known to. Unfortunately for McDonald's defense, it would subsequently come to light that Maserol, despite Detective Beasley's assurances that he was out on bail in February 1970, had, in fact, been in jail. He could not have participated in the murders. In any case, we have yet another case of McDonald re-remembering events in a manner that exonerated him. Can this many convenient revisions be coincidental? Here is another bit of evidence, which does not fit neatly into our categories of fibers, blood, wound patterns, and handy revisions. The wooden club, which was really a slab of wood that someone put to use as a club to murder Colette and Kimberly. McDonald denied having seen any of the other murder weapons, and we have no contemporaneous testimony to suggest that they came from within the apartment. This does not tell us that they did not come from within the apartment, of course. After all, asking friends and neighbors, as CID agents did, if they remember seeing this or that paring knife or ice pick in the McDonald home could easily yield no evidence of such items, even if they were from the home. In any case, McDonald said he'd never seen them. He said the same about the slab of wood, but in that case, the government ultimately produced convincing evidence that the wood was from the home. Its grain pattern and growth rings matched those of a slat in Kimberly's bed. The slab club was also stained with the same paint used to cover the bed's footboard and headboard. That paint was also on a pair of latex gloves located in a locked storage shed outside the back door. Now let's juxtapose our two potential stories in light of the fact that the wooden club we actually have, not that McDonald claimed to have been attacked by, was from the McDonald home. Either McDonald killed his family using weapons from the apartment, two knives, an ice pick, and a slab of lumber, and then tossed them into the backyard, or intruders attacked the family using two knives, an ice pick, and a baseball bat that they brought with them, and one slab of wood that they happened upon, either in the locked storage shed out back, or in a nearby well where McDonald stored such slabs, or in the utility room where pieces of wood were also located. The intruders would then have tossed the weapons aside as they departed, all but the baseball bat, that is. Incidentally, note where the weapons were tossed. One paring knife was found in the master bedroom, but the other knife and the ice pick were both located beneath a bush, as though they'd been tossed there by one person, rather than by two people dropping weapons willy-nilly as they fled. Granted, the club was located further out in the yard. What about those black wool fibers that were found on the club, and in Colette's mouth, and on her sleeve? 
On appeal, one of McDonald's blue-chip attorneys, Harvey Silverglate, argued that this evidence, which prosecutors had suppressed in 1979, was powerful proof of McDonald's innocence. Clearly, whoever killed Colette was wearing black wool, and nothing in the apartment was made of black wool. It turns out that of the five black wool fibers investigators discovered in the apartment, no one was like another. None had come from a common source, that is. This suggests strongly the black fibers were random debris, not evidence of a single individual wearing a black woolen garment. And finally, what about McDonald's pajama top with its 48 holes? How were those made? We cannot say for sure. What we can say, with a high degree of confidence, is that the holes were not made in the living room, where not a single fiber turned up, which means McDonald was lying about where they were made. It would be interesting to know more, but we don't need to in order to conclude that McDonald, if he lied about the attack, was guilty of the murders. The great American prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, once noted that most people have a naive idea of how criminal investigations work. In the stories we tell ourselves in books and movies, the investigators invariably, in the end, weave all the disparate strands of evidence into a coherent, final, revelatory narrative that solves the crime. Case closed. In real life, as every good investigator and also historian knows, it never works that way. There will always be danglers, things that don't fit. Knowing that, our job is to tell the story that makes the most sense of the most evidence. Two or three danglers is different than 20 or 30. If the bulk of the evidence does not fit into the story we tell, the story is wrong. On the other hand, it cannot be counted against a story that it fails to account for every piece of evidence. That just isn't how life works. Real life entails coincidences and anomalies. Weird things happen, and they are just the kinds of things that we tend to burnish out of our storytelling. And so, when they crop up in real life, they make us uncomfortable. What are some of these danglers in the McDonald case? Well, we have to decide. What is a dangler and what isn't? What is more likely to be an improbable coincidence? That Kenneth Micah happened to drive past a woman roughly matching Jeffrey McDonald's description of an intruder standing on a corner a half mile from the crime scene? Or that all of Jeffrey McDonald's pajama fibers wound up in the rooms where he wasn't attacked and where his pajamas therefore weren't ripped and repeatedly punctured? That a local drug user who sometimes wore a blonde wig and floppy hat had no alibi for the night of the murders? Or that intruders intent upon killing Jeffrey McDonald, intruders who stabbed everyone in the house scores of times, left Jeffrey lying face down in the hallway and left not a scratch on his back, the one part of McDonald's body McDonald himself could not injure? I would contend that the probability of a random woman in a wide-brimmed hat standing on a street corner a half mile from the crime scene is greater than the probability that none of Jeffrey McDonald's blood or pajama fibers would be left in the location where he was attacked by intruders. We can lower the probability of the woman on the street corner by tacking on the Casper's testimony regarding the voices outside their window. But even the combination of these facts cannot, for me, overcome the improbability of the mismatch between McDonald's description of events and the physical evidence in the apartment. As uncanny as the woman on the street corner was, we are still left with plenty of questions if we are to entertain the possibility that she was involved in the crime. For example, where were her compatriots? In a wilderness of error, Errol Morris interviewed Helena Stokely's brother, Jean, who told Morris that Stokely had relayed to their mother that she saw the murders and that she had fled the scene alone when things spun out of control. Morris. So she left the others? Jean Stokely. 
That's what she said? That's what she told my mom? So she could have ended up... Left behind. Left standing out there on that road, alone. It is another powerfully evocative moment in Morris's book. Then again, it is also another instance in which Stokely, based on what was publicly known about the case, could have insinuated herself into it. After all, Stokely claimed, on and off, to be the woman in the floppy hat. It thus stands to reason that she would imply that she was the woman on the corner of Honeycutt and North Lucas. But contrast Stokely, who said so many untrue things about her involvement in the case over the years, with Kenneth Micah, who was arguably the most scrupulously honest person to testify at the Article 32. And recall what Micah said, categorically, the woman on the corner of Honeycutt and North Lucas was not Helena Stokely. Micah's were the only eyes that ever took in the woman on the corner. Perhaps we should trust them. As skeptical as I am of Joe McGinnis, there is a passage in Fatal Vision whose persuasive pull is difficult to deny. Writing of his experience observing the 1979 trial, McGinnis recalled, There were a lot of nights I did not sleep in Raleigh. It got worse towards the end, particularly after Helena Stokely had testified. It was not so much what she had said or hadn't said. It was Jeffrey McDonald's absolute lack of reaction to her presence. If his story were true... She was the woman who had participated in the slaughter of his family, and here she was, after nine and a half years, 20 feet from him in the courtroom. Yet, he showed no anger, no sorrow, not even curiosity. There was anger at the judge, of course, for not permitting the Stokely witnesses to testify. There was anger at Brian Murtaugh and Paul Stamba and Mildred Kassab. But toward the woman who had, he said, destroyed the people he had loved most, and who had reduced his own life to dust and ashes, he displayed less emotion than he did while watching Gilda Ratner perform on Saturday Night Live. One of Jeffrey McDonald's attorneys, Wade Smith, has noted, correctly, that people grieve in their own ways. A person's not showing the appropriate emotion at the appropriate moment does not necessarily indicate anything, And we have seen how dangerous it can be to assume, as almost everyone does, that one can detect another person's sincerity and honesty merely by scrutinizing their affect. It's just not true. Then again, when one thinks about enduring an experience like McDonald's, considers what was done to his two young children and their pregnant mother, their crushed skulls, broken bones, and mangled bodies, it is a little difficult to understand McDonald's lack of emotion when he at last shared a room with the woman who had held the candle chanted acid is groovy, killed the pigs, hit him again, and then disappeared into the night with the murderers of his family. The issue of Danglers runs deeper than merely the few pieces of evidence that cannot be made to fit into our story. Jeffrey MacDonald himself doesn't fit. Psychopaths, as any competent psychologist will testify, have histories, and the histories conform to a pattern Psychopaths cannot maintain close relationships. McDonald married his high school sweetheart. They leave a trail of bruised and battered ex-friends and lovers in their wake. The army's exhaustive search of McDonald's personal history turned up none. And so on. As Stephen A. Diamond writes in a 2009 article in Psychology Today, The specific diagnostic criteria set forth by DSM-IV-TR make it clear that psychopathy, sociopathy, 
disocial or antisocial personality disorder cannot and should not ever be diagnosed in a vacuum on the basis of a violent crime without having concrete evidence of there being a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring since age 15 years. McDonald's biography even when exhaustively investigated by the government, read like a walking repudiation of psychopathology. The psychopath designation was pure ad hoc. Was he a narcissist? It's possible, but most narcissists aren't capable of murdering their wife and children or anyone else. The other theories about McDonald's threatened masculinity and the like have even less going for them. So how? How could Jeffrey McDonald have done it? Our desire to shoehorn his personality into some prefabricated pathological mold stems from our inability to reasonably answer that question. There had to have been something wrong with him, something psychologists know about and understand. He hid it from us, but it was there, and it explains everything. But that appears to be as much a myth as McDonald's story of intruders. Even McGinnis had trouble chalking up the night of February 16, 17, 1970 to simple psychopathy. He thus added a novel element, speed. McGinnis claimed to have discovered McDonald's use of speed while the author was searching through private papers to which McDonald had given him access. There, he stumbled upon the April 1970 handwritten account of the night of the murders that McDonald had prepared for his attorneys, wherein McDonald disclosed he had been taking a diet pill called Escatrol in February 1970. But there is no credible evidence that McDonald was taking the pills in any significant quantity and the speed theory glosses over the illogical idea that McDonald, the smooth-talking, highly manipulative, Princeton-educated psychopath, would disclose such information to McGinnis when McDonald knew full well that his medical examinations from the morning of the murders concluded he had no drugs in his system. Is this supposed to have been an oversight? The doctor, indeed the drug abuse counselor, accidentally divulging that he happened to be on speed on the night of the murders? McGinnis was aware that his more discerning readers might find this novel theory of the murders incredible, and therefore tried to head off the charge of absurdity at the pass. And when McDonald sat down to write the first account of the night's events, knowing that he was now considered the chief suspect, he wrote, his consumption of a drug which is capable of triggering psychotic rage had been the thing he had felt it necessary to mention first. If one can count this disclosure as evidence of McDonald's guilt rather than of his innocence, then one can count anything as evidence of his guilt. Incidentally, McGinnis's claim that the speed was the thing McDonald had felt it necessary to mention first was false. As Jerry Allen Potter and Fred Boss note in their book-length rebuttal of Fatal Vision, McDonald mentioned the Escatrol a full 54 single-space type lines into the journal entry. If we set aside the speculation and circular reasoning and commit ourselves to simply following the evidence, we are left with the conclusion that Jeffrey McDonald was an ambitious, well-liked, clean-living, hard-working family man whose wife, children, friends, and colleagues thought the world of him. His primary character flaw appears to have been rampant philandering, which is no small matter, but the bridge from philanderer to murderer is, statistically speaking, rarely crossed. Why, then? Did he do it? I don't know the answer, but given the totality of the evidence, it does seem reasonable to conclude, as the government did, that something occurred in the early morning hours of February 17, 1970, which triggered McDonald's rage. Whatever it was is more likely to have come from Colette than the children. Children can drive a normal parent a bit crazy, 
but a rage reflex is more likely to have emerged from something uttered by a person capable of cutting McDonald to the quick. Mrs. Kalin heard Colette's voice raised in anger. Things had escalated. McDonald struck. He harmed Colette badly. Perhaps, as prosecutors alleged, his eldest daughter, Kimberly, rushed in to help her mother or to see what was happening, as the presence of Kimberly's type AB blood in the room suggested. However things played out from there, McDonald reasoned that he could not turn back. Were he to leave anyone alive, his life as he knew it, all his hopes and dreams and ambitions would be over. And he reasoned that this would be a waste. Was it easy for him to kill his family, and especially his youngest, Kristen, who was only two years old? I suspect it was not. I suspect that when we see McDonald, decades later, recalling Kimberly crying out, Daddy, 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 and we see his eyes well up and hear his voice falter, the emotions are real. It is probably still hard for Jeffrey McDonald to recall what he did. But humans are moral compromise machines, as even a peek at history will disclose. McDonald likely figured that, having done what he did, it would be little use to anyone for him to spend the rest of his days in prison. Whereas someone like him, on the outside and free, could do a great deal of good in the world, perhaps even enough good to make up for this terrible evil. As the student whom Raskolnikov overhears at the tavern in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment puts it, would not one tiny crime be wiped out by thousands of good deeds? For one life, thousands would be saved. Given his skills as a surgeon, McDonald would, unlike the average murderer, save far more lives than he had taken, including the lives of mothers and children. And by all accounts, McDonald did save a great many lives when he returned to medical practice after being cleared by the army. He rose to head of emergency medicine at St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach, California. He taught at the UCLA Medical School. He authored an emergency medicine textbook. He even became, as McGinnis wrote, a nationally known lecturer on the subject of recognition and treatment of child abuse. How about that? Recall McDonald's testimony before the grand jury when he confessed, you know, I feel guilty every time I have a good time. You know that? Every time I have a good time, I pay an equal price. If I have a good day in the emergency room, I have to spend some time by myself to sort of recuperate because I shouldn't have been having a good time, because I should have died. There may well be some truth in that statement. Perhaps McDonald does, or did, carry a heavy burden of guilt. And perhaps he reasoned that such guilt was punishment enough. Perhaps today he still thinks, what good has it done anyone for me to have remained behind bars all these years? How many lives might I have saved had I been left alone and permitted to continue practicing medicine? It is, admittedly, a crudely utilitarian calculation. But is it so far-fetched for someone to reason this way in the modern world, where MacDonald lived and thrived? A world where so many educated, sophisticated people are moral relativists, who have long since left behind the God who will one day judge the great and the small? And might not Jeffrey McDonald see himself as something of a great, given his gifts and accomplishments? This was a world-beater, loved and admired by seemingly everyone who knew him. Cannot such people, without succumbing to psychopathy or even narcissism, simply inhabit a universe in which, 
given that no heavenly judge exists, no earthly judge is entitled to stand in his place? Yes, MacDonald may have done something wrong, even horribly wrong, but no, no man cloaked in a black robe, artificially elevated by an imperfect legal system, would dictate what his life would or wouldn't be, would condemn him to live as an animal in a cage until he died. Are there not many intellectuals who have argued that incarceration is really about reform, not something so metaphysically flimsy as justice? And might not someone like MacDonald conclude that, in effect, he was reformed? He would never do anything like this again, and he knew it. And no ignorant, uneducated juror, or sanctimonious, half-educated judge, or senile, over-educated psychologist could rightly tell him differently? It is frightening to consider that this could be the reality, that with all our scientific and social scientific understanding, we cannot get our hands around someone like Jeffrey MacDonald. But I believe that is the reality. As Hamlet cautioned Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Of all the things in heaven and earth, this may be truest of ourselves.